And uh, I, I hope that this little series has been a blessing to you. It has been a rich blessing to me and my family. And so we consider how to live when things don't go so well, how to live in troubling times. And I wonder, as I, I've been praying about this book, I wonder if this, this were, we're not here for perhaps some people in particular. I don't have anybody in mind, but I, but I also wonder if, if this is not just a way for God to prepare our hearts for the future. And uh, it certainly has been a, a, a rich, rich feast for me. And I have learned so much that I did not anticipate. And I, I hope that God has equally been blessing you as we consider this now, our third of six weeks in the book of Habakkuk. We think about living by faith in troubling times. We'll begin in verse 2 of chapters 2. Chapter 2, verse 2. Hear now the word of God. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, His soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Our Father, we're thankful for your word this morning. And even as I I just shared a moment ago, um, this this book has been such a treasure to me. Uh, Your word is, is so deep and so powerful and so beautiful. And uh, I pray that it would be today, not that, that it becomes that, you would give us eyes to see it. We just long for you to speak to us today, just as you did as prophet. You speak to us through your word, that we might know our God even better and be transformed even more. And so glorify yourself by molding us into the image of Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer in the early 1600s, was, as a young man, an Augustinian monk. And he was, as a monk, plagued by his own sinfulness. So much so that uh, he, he would constantly be in the confessional, just incessant confessions. Six hours a day, he would sit in that confessional and confess his sins. And he would walk away, and as he's walking out of the the church, he would remember a sin that he did not confess, and he would turn around and go right back and confess those sins. But then he began to think, well, what about the sins I don't know about? What about the sins I'm unaware of? I can only confess the ones that come to my mind. How can I be forgiven for the sins in which I don't confess because I don't know? And then to make matters worse, he began to think about, well, what about my motives for confessing sin? Perhaps my motives for confessing sin are sin. Maybe I'm confessing sin just to save my own skin, not out of a love for God or a pursuit of righteousness. And so I'm sinning in the very act of confessing sin. And so he not only would confess his sin, he would confess his motives for confessing sin. Of course, the motives for confessing your motives for confessing sin might be sin themselves, right? And on we go. And Martin Luther was plagued by this until his confessor finally said to him, exasperated as he was, look here, brother Martin, if you're going to confess so much, why don't you do something worthy of confessing? Kill your mother. Commit adultery. Quit coming here with such flummery. Well, to Luther, it was, was not flummery. His understanding of Scripture at that time was that he must be righteous. And the church said in order to be righteous, you need to go through the acts of penance, which includes confession of sin. He believed the righteousness of God was the standard by which he would be judged. And so eventually the church did with Luther what every bureaucracy does with annoying people they can't get rid of. They promoted him. And one of the perks of his job was a trip to Rome from Germany. This 
This would have been a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This would have been like winning the lottery of his day. It was an amazing opportunity, and there were so many things he wanted to do when he got to Rome. And one of the things that he wanted to do is he wanted to climb Pilate's judgment stairs. You see, the Roman Catholic Church uh, teaches that they brought Pilate's judgment hall with the 28 stairs from Jerusalem to Rome. You could climb them today. Pilgrims, I'm sure, are climbing them this very morning. And you, you can climb them, and, and, and as you do... You climb these 28 stairs, you'll find stains on the stairs that are today covered with glass, and it's said to be that the stains are there from the blood of Christ, and they're kind of protecting them from the pilgrims. And you, you climb these stairs, but you do it in a unique way. You do it on your knees. And each step you take on your knees, you kiss the stair, uh, and then you pray the rosary, and then you continue, and you do the next step, and the next step, and the next step. And, and, and you do this in order to earn God's favor. God's indulgence. This is a way in which the Roman Catholic Church teaches you can access God's grace. Well, Luther's doing this, and he's going step by step on his knees, and he's, the thought occurs to him, this is ridiculous. How, how is this in any way earning God's favor? How does this make me more righteous? His son, who would write a biography on his father, would write of the transformation that took place on that staircase. As he repeated his prayers on the ladder and staircase, the words of Scripture came suddenly to his mind. The righteous shall live by faith. Thereupon he ceased his prayers and returned to Wittenberg and took this as the chief foundation of all his doctrine. Lutheran would say of this event, before those words broke upon my mind, I hated God. But when by the Spirit of God I understood those words, the righteous shall live by faith, the righteous shall live by faith, then I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. It was what a transformation. This man who thinks he has to spend six hours a day and more in confession just to earn God's favor now feels like as if he could walk right into the very presence of God, into his very paradise because of this idea, the righteous shall live by faith. Do you know where we find that scripture? The book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2, 4, saved Martin Luther. Habakkuk 2, 4 started the Protestant Reformation. The gospel was rediscovered because of Habakkuk. God's righteousness is not the law by which we will be judged. It is the gift given to us when we trust him, when we put our faith in him. That I, and if you are a Christian today, have received God's righteousness through faith. And it's what this little prophet teaches. It changed Luther's life. It changed the world. And I think it could change our lives, too, if we appropriate it properly into our lives. I've mentioned that this is the third week in our study of the book of Habakkuk. Just to catch us up, you remember week one, we saw Habakkuk crying out to God about the immorality of Judah, of his own people, asking God, why don't you act? Why don't you do something? God responds and says, I am going to do something. I'm sending these crazy, psychotic people named the Babylonians, and they're going to come and destroy you. Now, you could imagine, as we did last week, what that would be like. It would be like if you, your, your neighborhood was full of violence and, and, and danger and crime, and you go to the police and say, hey, my neighborhood is just a cesspool of wickedness. Why don't you do something? And the police says, don't worry, we're going to drop a bomb. Right? And you might say to the police, well, you know, uh, there's a problem with that plan. I live there. Right? And other decent people live there as well. This is Habakkuk's response to God. Are you going to sweep away the godly with the ungodly? Are you going to just let them keep killing the nations forever? And then he says, I'm going to climb the tower. Remember this last week? And I'm going to wait for your answer, right? I'm just going to, I don't, as long as it takes, I'm going to wait. And so we've been waiting all week, right? That's where we left off. What is God's answer to Habakkuk's complaint? Well, it is multifaceted. It is beautiful, but at the very heart of it, it's chapter 2, verse 4. It is this call from God to trust me that Habakkuk, you and everyone else will survive judgment ultimately by faith. So we live by faith in these troubling times, and, and, and part of that living by faith is that we, we have faith in the truth of God. 
And so God is going to make sure that we have the truth of God as if we are to live by faith, and he wants us to consider it. So the first point this morning of how to live by faith in troubled times is that we need to consider the truth of God. You see this in verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. As the prophet Isaiah was told to write down his revelation on a scroll, as the prophet Jeremiah was told to write down his in a book, so Habakkuk is told to write down God's answer to his question on tablets. This is because God doesn't want there to be any misunderstanding to what he's about to say. Moreover, he doesn't want us to ignore his answer. He wants, he wants it to be clearly understood. This is why he says there, so that he may run who reads it. When a prophet, when scripture says when a prophet would run, that's the way of saying the prophet has a message from God and they're coming to tell you this. So Jeremiah would talk about the false prophets this way saying, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. So you see, in, in that, this case, as well as in Habakkuk, when a prophet comes running, that means they're coming to share a message from God. Therefore, when he says, write, write this down so that he may run, um, who reads it, he's saying, I want this message to be communicated. I want people to understand it. I want the people of Judah to understand it. And I, and I think I w- he wants the people of Hamilton, Virginia to understand it. Right? Write it down, because this answer is not only crucial for my people at this time, it's crucial for the generations to come. And so here we are, and, and don't just blow by this, I think it's pretty extraordinary, 2,600 years later, this little town called Hamilton, we're reading God's answer. That's how it got, how did it get from Judah 2,600 years ago to us today? Oh, Habakkuk did what God said. He wrote it down. You see, God speaks to prophets, and the prophets write down the word of God so God can speak to us. In other words, God doesn't simply speak to prophets. He speaks through prophets, and he continues to speak through prophets even when that prophet is dead. We have no idea, by the way, what happened to Habakkuk. Was he killed in the Babylonian invasion? Did he even live to that point? We don't know. The only thing we know about Habakkuk is what we see in his book. But what we do know is that though he is dead, God continues to speak through him. Right? We still hear from God by reading what he said to him. This is how God speaks. So you ever want God, God why don't you speak to me? Okay, well, this is, this is how he will speak to you in his Bible. This is the revelation of God. This is not a collection of man's wisdom, but it is God's word to us. Read the Bible, and when you read the Bible, you know what? You are hearing from God. And I would even say it is no different than if God spoke to you directly. Right? I mean, it would be pretty powerful if God spoke to us directly, but the content is no different. What we're considering today are the very words that God told to Habakkuk 2,600 years ago. And so God is speaking to us today just as much as he was speaking to that prophet long, long ago. And he is telling us here and elsewhere throughout his word who he is and what he's done and what he plans to do in order to inform our faith. If we're going to live by faith in troubled times, we need to know who this God is and what he plans to do. We need... Gather that information from God's word. In fact, he even says there in verse 2 that we are to use to make it plain. So what does he mean by that? Is he, is he telling Habakkuk, okay, make sure you write legibly? Well, maybe. Um, but there may be something more here. I think it's true, and maybe it's your experience, it has been from mine, that sometimes scripture is confusing. You ever come to a passage that I have no idea what this means? That It's challenging. And what God does so often, does he not, is he raises up people who help us understand Scripture, who who make it plain, who explain it to us and apply it to our lives. So in Deuteronomy 1, for instance, the Bible says Moses made God's word plain to the people. See, God, I believe, and I know this sounds very self-serving, but I believe God speaks through preachers. I think he speaks through teachers and disciplers. And to the degree in which they are communicating God's word. This is why we preach through books of the Bible. Because I simply just want to know what God has to say. And so I think it's just my job is to simply twofold is to explain it 
and apply it to your lives. That's what I try to do every Sunday. What does God say and what does that mean for you and I and us together? And that God wants it to be clear. And so he uses people to make that clear. This is why the Bible, we, we, we should not forsake the teaching and the preaching of God's word. It is good for us. It helps us to hear from God. And so God's word says here in this passage that he's going to act in an appointed time. So in order to live by faith, we not only need to consider God's word, we need to submit to the timing of God, which is point number two. God is teaching us as to how to live by faith. Submit to the timing of God. Look at verse three. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. You notice God says that there is an appointed time for the Babylonian judgment. God has set that time. Just as there is an appointed time for the final judgment. God has established that. It has been appointed by him. He goes on and says, it will not lie. And I think what God is communicating is that the appearances may contradict the message. Right? That's why he says, if it seems slow, what do you do? You wait for it. And we, we might be tempted to think, well, it doesn't, doesn't look like judgment's coming. doesn't look like God's in control. doesn't look like um, those who are wicked are, are going to have an accounting. I mean, people just keep doing everything they've always done. I mean, where, where is this judgment? We've been hearing about judgment all the time. People have been talking about judgment for thousands of years. Where's the judgment? We don't see it, right? And people are just doing what they've always been doing. They're, they're, they're shopping and they're, they're, they're raising families, right? They're getting married and they're just... In fact, there was a mar- I don't even know if you know, there's a marriage in Europe somewhere uh, yesterday, wasn't there, right? Um, and some, some prince somewhere got married to some lady. And so they're just, and there'll be, I think there'll probably be, there are princes before them that got married. And I'm sure there'll be princes after. And we're just gonna, princes just keep getting married. Just things keep going on and on and on. Where's the judgment? It doesn't seem like it's coming. In fact, the Bible anticipates this, doesn't it? And Peter says of the second coming, that they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. In other words, we are tempted to conclude God is lying. There is no judgment. And many people have concluded that, have they not? They live in light of that belief that God is a liar. There is no accountability. But we, as God's people, we must believe that God is not a man that he should lie. God says, trust me. I am not lying to you. It is coming. The Babylonian judgment is coming, despite what people will say. You read the prophet of Jeremiah, they went on and on. The false prophets, it's not coming, it's not coming, it's not coming. Right? God will not judge us. It's coming, God says. But it's not immediate. Just as the final judgment is not immediate. The reason what you say, well, why, why doesn't God just say, okay, the Babylonians are coming and they'll be here tomorrow at noon? Right? Why, why? We think there's probably about 20 years from when Habakkuk prophesied until when they, they came and finally destroyed uh, Judah completely. Why give a time? Why say there'll be a final judgment, there'll be a final reckoning at the throne of Christ, but then we go for thousands and thousands of years? Why not immediate? Well, again, Peter that answers that question saying, God is not slow. He is patient, wanting people to repent. So he announces judgment, and then in his great grace, he gives us time to respond in faith. 20 years for the people of Habakkuk's day, and 2,000 years for us in counting. He wants people to repent of their sin. It may be why God has brought you here today. God loves you. God wants to speak to you. God wants to call you to himself. God wants to say, I offer you grace and mercy through the shed blood of my son, Jesus Christ, and his resurrection. Turn from your sin, Tim, from your self-rule, and come to me. Repent, yield your life to me. For the rest of us, we are to wait on the Lord, aren't we? He says, though, though it seems slow, some translations say, though it lingers, wait for it. Wait for me to act. We talked at length about what it's like to wait for God last week. If you're interested, it was very helpful for me. I don't know if it was for you, but uh, it, we, we mentioned that it's hard 
Because we want God to act immediately, don't we? We don't want to wait for God to act. We, we want God to solve our problems today, right? Right now, please. I have trouble. I would like it taken care of by supper time. Will you take care of my issues? I don't want to wait. I don't want to wait a week. I don't want to wait a month. I don't want to wait 10 years. I don't want to keep waiting and waiting and not know when it's going to get solved. I want you to act right now. And God says, no, you have to wait. All my blessings do not come at an instant. They come at the appointed time. The life of faith, when all it sees is darkness, says, I will wait on my Lord. I will trust him, and I will look to his promises and not to my circumstances. Knowing who he is and what he will do, I will not be like Abraham who was told, you're going to have a son, you're going to have a son, you're going to have a son, you're going to have a son. And he's getting up into his 90s, and he says, where is the son Where's my son? And he does not wait. He takes Hagar into his tent, commits great sin. Though it lingers, wait for it. Last week we saw we wait by getting uh, uh, perspective, seeing God's big picture, and then doing what God calls us to do today and doing that tomorrow. But what about the attitude of waiting? Right? Have you ever, I don't know if this ever happened to you, but you ever been like in, you're in the doctor's office and you're there for the appointment at two? In fact, you're there maybe at, you know, 155 because you are a responsible and kind man or woman. And now it's 245 and you're still sitting there in the doctor's uh, doctors and you, I don't know, do you begin to rub your temples a little bit, right? Do one of these. You begin to sigh and maybe rock back and forth or your leg starts bouncing and you begin to mutter under your breath. Has that ever happened to you? You ever letting out big sighs, right, and get very fidgety? That's not waiting. At least that's not the waiting that God is calling for us to do. Waiting on God means we're patient, right? It means we trust. It means we don't grow agitated and chafe when he has what seems to us to be a delay. We don't blow up. We, we, we wait. We're patient. And you say, well, I, that's, not, that's not me. I'm just not a patient person, right? Well, I, I would, let me uh, lovingly and um, perhaps forcefully say, it's not that you're impatient. It's that you're not humble. Because listen, listen to me just for a moment. The reason why we get angry when there's a delay or reason why we get worried when life takes a turn that we don't want to turn. And by the way, uh, just by personal confession, life took a pretty big turn for Allegra and I on, on Friday. And it, not the direction we want it to go. And so I, I'm just going to, I'm just, I'm going to preach to me for just a minute, if that's okay. And maybe you'll get something out of it. But sometimes life doesn't go the way you want. And it's, okay, I got it planned out. And this is the way it's supposed to go. And it's not going that way. And our response is that we get angry or we get worried. We get concerned. So I got it all planned out, and this is where, it's, where I long for it to go. This is where I prayed, God, this is where you're sending me. Why aren't we going this way? And all of a sudden, you make this big turn, and, and you get all worked up. The reason why you get worked up is because you think you know what's best. That's where the pride comes from. Right? The, the, I mean, you, you, the reason why you're angry, the reason why you're worried, the reason why you're all bent out of shape is because you believe you know how your life is supposed to go. So my question for Stephen Carn this morning and for anybody else who might have this issue is how do you know? How do you know how your life is supposed to go? You don't. You can't see the impact of these events. You have no idea how this is going to work out. You have no idea what tomorrow brings or 10 years from now brings. You have no idea how this might impact thousands of people in the generations to come. You don't know, but God does. And so when we wait with patience, we're humble. Thank God I don't get this, I don't know, I don't understand, this is not what I want but it is what you have decreed, and we wait on you. When life takes a turn, I wonder, do you ever say, this is my opportunity to become more of the man or the woman that God wants me to be? 
Here it is. Here's, here's my chance. Because that's what the Bible says. James chapter 1, you perhaps know this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of various kinds. For the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be, listen, perfect and complete, not lacking anything. Or, Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing, why? How can I do that? Why? Because I know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope will not put us to shame. See, when bad things happen, or when good things are delayed, and you meet that with, with this patient trust, you will come out the other side more like Christ. You understand that? You'll have more poise. You'll have more stability. You'll have more joy. You'll have more trust. What, see, but the problem is, is that we, we, want, we want comfort and we want ease and we, we want justice sometimes. And God, you know what God wants? God wants you to be like his son. Right? You know Romans 8, 28, for, for, for we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who have been called according to his purpose. Do you know the next verse? Verse 29. For those he foreknew, whom he foreknew, he predestined to what? Be conformed to the image of his son. Why is he working all this? What does he mean, my good? What does he mean it's working for my good? It means I am working in such a way that I'm going to make you more like Jesus. And so suffering in our lives can form us. It can change us. Tim Keller tells an illustration of a, a soldier who was wounded in battle, and he has, he has got shrapnel in his, in his body, and he, he needs surgery. And the, the surgeon, the battlefield surgeon says, Okay, um, bad news, I have no anesthesia. Okay. And when I lie you on this table, you're going to have to stay still. No matter how you feel, no matter how hard this is, because if you flail around, you're going to lose your leg. Okay. See, hardship comes, I want to flail around. I... I I, I, just, I just want to chafe. I want to, I want to get worried. And you know what happens? You, when you do that, you become worse. You lose the leg. You become bitter. You become angry. You become unstable. You have, have very weak joy. Or you can wait on the Lord. You can be patient. And in the end, you become better. You become more peaceful and more stable and more like Jesus. Your trials, if you encounter them with waiting or not, they will make you better or worse. My question, therefore, for you is when trouble comes, how do you face it? Do you flail? Or do you patiently wait? Do you say to God, I will meet this with patience. And because I do so, I will become something more beautiful than I ever would be otherwise. In fact, one thing that waiting on the Lord will do, it will purify your love. I've, I'm sure I've said the last two weeks, I'll say today, and I'm probably for the next three weeks, that Habakkuk is a mini Job. And so it's helpful to kind of keep Job in your mind as you're reading through Habakkuk. And remember Job where Satan says to God, Job looks like your servant. He looks, he looks like he loves you, but he doesn't. Right? He, he just loves your things. He doesn't love you. He loves what you give him. And, and you just take away his things, and you'll see. Take away the blessings, and you'll see, does he actually love you? My question is, is he right? Not about Job, but about you. Right? The only way to find out is trouble. You see that? The only way to find out if I truly love God for who he is rather than the things he gives me is for him to actually take some of the things away. It's only in trouble that I... That, that, I, that I, I, I can love him for who he is and not the blessings in which he's given me because there are no blessings in the time of trouble. So God would say to Abraham, for instance, when he takes up his son, his beloved son, the son of promise, and he takes him up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice him in obedience to God, he says to Abraham, now I know you love me. Not just because I made you wealthy, not just because I gave you a son. I know you love me. I know you love me for me. You see, it's in trouble that our love for God can be purified. It can be strengthened. And when darkness lifts, you'll find that that pressure has turned 
you this lump of coal into a diamond to the glory of God. And you find that you have this stable peace and strength and joy. We need to submit to the timing of God if we're to live by faith. But ultimately what it means to live by faith, it means to place our trust in him. So we place our trust in God, point number three, as we see in verse four. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. God, there's two types of people here in verse four. You see that? There's the proud who trust in themselves, and then there is the righteous who trust in the Lord. He calls the proud those who are puffed up in their soul. That is, they have a very high view of themselves. This, of course, is a reference to the Babylonians. The puffed up man is the Babylonians, but it applies to everyone, doesn't, who's proud like the Babylonians, who, who say, you know, I could do whatever I set my mind to, or, you know, it's nothing too hard for me, or there's no obstacle I can't overcome if I just give myself to it. You, know, you understand, I, we know, I know that's the mantra in America, but that's, that's arrogance, isn't it? This is pride, I could do it all, right? It's just about me and me and me. And, and, and the proud will, will find out, though they may succeed for a while, they're going to come to a terrible end. That's what the rest of chapter 2 is about. We'll consider that God willing next week. But the reason they come to a terrible end is that they live, the proud live without any regard to God. They, 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 walk, they walk around and they say, well, look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. And I'm smart and I'm capable and I'm wise and I'm godly. And I've done this and I've done that. And the question is, well, who gave you that wisdom? Why, why are you wise? <laughs> who gave you those opportunities? Right? Who created you? Who keeps you alive? Who, 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 who has paved this way for you? See, when we start to take credit for what God has done, we actually set ourselves up in opposition to God. God does not like it when you steal his glory. In fact, he would tell the people of Judah this as they brought them into the promised land. From Deuteronomy chapter 8, the Lord says, When you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery. He led you through vast and dreadful deserts. He brought you water from a hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the desert. You may say to yourself, my power and my strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And then he concludes, if you ever forget the Lord your God, I testify against you today that you will surely perish. God opposes the proud. But, as you know, the Lord says, he gives grace to the humble. The humble are those who trust in God. He says you're proud over here, and then there are the righteous over here. And God is here in verse 4 telling us how it is we can become righteous. That is how we can have a right standing before God. How can we be acceptable to a holy and righteous God? Martin Luther thought initially that he'll become righteous by acts of charity and by doing penance and climbing stairs on your knees and six hours of confession. And we see what Habakkuk says. No, you become righteous through faith. You become, God counts you to be righteous through your trust in him. Just as Abraham, in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God. You know it? It was credited to him as righteousness. He believed, and because of his faith, God credits to him and all who believe like him as righteous. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian, I, just to boil Christianity down in its most basic foundation, it, it, it comes to this question, do you trust in Jesus? That is, do you have faith? Or do you rely on your own goodness? Say, I'm good enough, I, I'll accomplish this on my own. There was once a man named Saul who was very good. Right? He was very righteous and very religious and very dutiful and, and very committed and very, very sincere in his religious convictions. And he believed by being a good person, well, he, he, he would be acceptable to God. I'm just going to do what God tells me to do. I'm going to be a good person, a nice neighbor, and I'll be pleasing to God. And then Saul eventually comes to the realization that of all of his moral and religious accomplishments, they're actually useless in earning God's favor. And he would write and in fact, he would write a number of books, and he would quote Habakkuk 2.4 three times. 
We already saw one in Galatians. There's another time he quotes it in Galatians, but perhaps the most famous quotation is Romans chapter one, when he says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Salvation for everyone who does, who does acts of charity and confession. No, everyone who believes as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, what, what the scripture is teaching us, it is, it's not about the type of, what matters is not about the type of person that I am. It, what matters is, do I trust in Jesus? And if I trust in Jesus, God, by his amazing grace to us, will consider, consider me and all who trust in him to be righteous. He will say, you are righteous. I can count you to be righteous. We call that the doctrine of justification by faith that we are justified by faith alone, and it is the heart of Christianity. In fact, 100 years before Habakkuk ever taught this, God spoke this same truth through the prophet Isaiah, who said in Isaiah 53, the righteous one, my servant, that's a reference to Jesus, the Messiah is coming. Isaiah said this 700 years before he came, the righteous one, my servant, will make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You see, the righteous one, the Lord Jesus, he comes and he dies upon the cross, and what he does is he takes our sin upon him, he bears our iniquities, and then he gives us his righteousness. And we become clothed in his righteousness only if we unite to him through faith. Right? And so, Christian, Jesus has taken your sin and given you his righteousness. And he's taking your death and he's giving you life and he's taking your judgment and he's giving you, you paradise and he's taking distance from God, your uh, alienation from God and he is giving you intimacy. And this, this is the very foundation of Christianity that it is not about what we can do for God but it is what God has done for us. So ask yourself. Everyone here should ask themselves right now, will I have life when I stand before God. Will he give me eternal life? And I, in fact, I would suggest to not ask yourself that question is insane. I just think it's utter foolishness not to wrestle with the idea of how can I be made right with my maker. Are you ready to stand before the divine judge? Are you ready for God to pass his sentence on you? Will you be given life in that day? I will. And I trust many, many here will. And it is not because we are good or righteous people, godly people. It is because we have trusted in Jesus. The righteous shall live by faith. The only thing that will save you is faith in Jesus. Moral people, religious people, Good people die and go to hell. In fact, Jesus taught that. He's told a story. You know this story. He told a story to a bunch of people, listen, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. In other words, he told, taught, was talking to people who thought they were good. And I'll stand before God and God will see I'm a good person. He said, well, the, listen, I want to tell you a story. There, are, there, are, there were two people who went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. And he prayed like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. You see, <laughs> see how modern that man is. How, you know, thank you, God, that I'm not as bad as my neighbor. You know, I'm, I'm you know, of course God will accept me. I'm not Hitler. I'm not, a, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a bad guy. Thank you, God. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not an adulterer. I don't do all these things. In fact, even uh, here, here are my good things I do. I, I, I give some money to charity, right? I'm a good person. I, I, I come to worship, right? And I, and I do these good things. And so there's the one guy, the good guy, the other tax collector, standing far off, Jesus said, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus has the audacity to say, I tell you, this tax collector went down to his house justified, righteous, rather than the Pharisee. 
You see, in order to be declared righteous by God, we have to acknowledge our sin. We do this in humility. We turn from pride. We turn from our own works, and we trust in God. And then like this tax collector, we cry out for mercy. We say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You could do that right now in your heart. You could call it to God. Be merciful to me, a sinner. I need mercy. I'm not good enough to stand before a holy and righteous God. Give me mercy through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We all need to be saved. What that means is we can't earn it. We need a savior and you can access one. You can have the only one by faith. Have you done that? Are you a Christian? Do you believe in Jesus? You know, the the Western-minded person will say, well, you know, that's private, right? Mind your own business, okay? And the more legalistic person will say, right? You you walk up to someone this afternoon, maybe someone you know well, and say, are you a Christian, right? Someone that you've been worshiping here for years. See what happens. Well, well, I'm going to give away what's going to happen, right? But... Are you a Christian? The legalist will say, of course I'm a Christian. What what are you getting at? What do you mean? Why are you asking that? What are you trying to get to? The person who understands the gospel, they might even pause. And they might say, I am. Can you believe it? (laughs) Me, a Christian. Can you believe it? I mean, it's like it's a joke. Me. Right before God. You know, sometimes when I'm in discipling relationships, I, I ask the individual, and I'll ask them this week, week after week, so they get used to it. But the first time I ask them, I say, I say to them, well, well, tell me, do you love Jesus? And sometimes they're like, wait, what are you, what are you, what are you talking about? Of course I love Jesus, right? Uh, Why why are you asking? What are you trying to get at, Stephen? What's your angle? But some people, they, they get it. They say, sometimes they pause and say, I do, and I just think it's so amazing that I, someone like me, can love Jesus. You see, we're saved by faith, not by our righteousness. And so we trust him for our salvation. But here's the amazing thing. That's not all that Habakkuk 2.4 teaches. It's not just trust him for your salvation, but you trust him when you suffer. Because Habakkuk is facing the prospects of terrible suffering, and he's told by God, okay, suffering's coming, the, the, the conqueror's coming, but the righteous will live by faith. Right? My people, God says, put their life into my hands in troubling times. And just as God has saved you by your faith, God will sustain you through your suffering by your faith. I mentioned that Paul quotes Habakkuk 2, 4, three times. It's actually quoted a fourth time in the New Testament, and it's in Hebrews chapter 10. And in Hebrews 10, the church is being plundered and persecuted and suffering, and, and the author of Hebrews is trying to minister to this people who are, are, are in terrible, terrible trial. And he says to them, I think in verse 35, he says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, right? That's your faith. Don't throw away your faith, which has a great reward for, and he begins to quote Habakkuk, yet a little while the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous ones shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Then he says, but we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who have faith and preserve their souls. So these people are struggling. Some people in in the book of uh, Hebrews, the Christians he's writing to, have given up meeting for worship. What's the use of worshiping God if this is the life we're going to live? Right? So some people are in prison. Others have lost their property. They're homeless, right? And the writer of Hebrews says, this is no time to shrink back and stop trusting him. It's in fact, now more than ever, you need faith. You need faith, and your faith will sustain you in difficult times, and maybe your life is hard right now. Maybe you're lonely. Maybe you want to be married. Maybe you read the Bible, and the Bible says it is not good for man to be alone, and you say, I agree, amen. Where's my wife? Where is she, God? Why am I still single? Maybe it's health. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's your future. And life is not working out like you want. And God comes to you in his word for you this morning, I believe with all my heart. 
is that my righteous ones, they live by faith. They trust me. And you, you might protest. You say, but I, I don't see him working. I don't see it working. Well, don't you think Habakkuk could have said that? I don't, I don't see this. I don't know how this is going to work out. This is why we call it faith, not sight. We don't live by sight. Sometimes righteous ones live by sight. Okay, I see how it see all puts together. No, we live by faith. If you, if you have sight, you don't need faith. God says, no, you, you live by faith. Or another way to put it is, is that we have faith, not understanding. And that's hard for us. You know Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5? This is a prayer that, that my wife and I, um, on Friday, we gathered around our breakfast table and held hands and we prayed to God and we just kind of meditated and talked to God about Proverbs 3, 5. And you have it memorized, I bet. It's trust, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart and what? And lean not on your own understanding. You see, there's, there's two realities here. There's trust or faith and there's understanding. And, and what do you need, right? Well, what does God say you need in, the, in this situation? Do you need understanding? He says, no, don't, don't lean on your own understanding. You need trust. You need trust in God when you don't understand. And so I, I'm, I'm, up, you know, I, I'm so excited for these graduates who come up here and, and just incredible accomplishment. And, they're, uh, and, and there's hope and there's direction at that time. Um, there was a time when I graduated. And um, in fact, I graduated twice with uh, two degrees in political science. I spent six years studying political science. Uh, I, I have the school loans to prove it as a 43-year-old man. Right? I busted my hump. I, 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 in undergrad, I, I, when all my friends were going off doing this and that, I'm, I'm the guy, that was me who was studying for the exam. So I graduated top of my class so I could get into a prestigious graduate school because I knew this was what God wanted me to do. And so I spent six years in just pouring my life into this study, and I graduate, and I have a couple job offers, and I go to get to my security clearance, and I can't pass a lie detector exam. It's okay to laugh. That's all right. I'm, the wound, you know, the scar's still there, but the wound's healed. I took, a, I took it five times. Now, if you think there's like a path, okay, you can't pass a lie detector exam, you become a pastor, right? Um, <laughs> no, that... That path, if there is a path, that path was not apparent to me. And so <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking, wait a second, I've, I've prayed for years. This is clearly what God wants me to do. And I have spent six years of my life devoting myself to this. And, and, and I have a wife, and we want to start a family, and I need a career. And now everything I wanted to do, everything I've prepared is closed and I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. I have no idea. And if you would have, if you would have given me a list of options, you know, a thousand list of options to 23-year-old Stephen of what he would be doing 20 years later when he's 43, pastoring, you know, Hamilton Baptist Church would have been number 1,000, right? I, I had no clue what God was doing. I can't, you can't lean on your own understanding. You don't know. Don't lean on your own understanding. What? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not just your mind, but your heart. I give this to you, God. We need to live by faith. And so Satan comes and he destroys Job, doesn't he? I mean, just, he kills his children. He kills his animals. He destroys his wealth. He ruins his physical health. And so Job is without, without money. He's without children. And he's sitting there in his ashes, scraping the boils that have now covered his skin with shards of pottery. The only things that Job has, he has three things. One is he has terrible friends who want to argue theology with him when they should be praying for him. Two... He's got an awful wife whose only advice is just cuss God out and then die already. Okay? And this is, this, is, this is where he's at. So he's got terrible friends, an awful wife. He has no money. He has no family. He has no health. But do you know what else he has? He has faith. And he even says, even though he slay me, even if he kills me, yet... 
I will trust in him. We must live by faith. Do you trust in him? So how? How can I trust in him? Well, I think there's a hundred different ways. But don't you, we have to, we, we were talking about this in Sunday school. We, we have to realize that, that our, our sufferings are temporary, right? We're, we're headed to a direction as we thought about Psalm 23. I, I preached a funeral this, this, uh, this Wednesday in, in Southern Virginia, and I was rejoicing at the end of Psalm 23 that, sh- that surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And then what? What happens when my life is over? And then I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's forever. And so listen, your loneliness is temporary and your, the tumors are temporary and the, and the poverty is temporary and the diseases are temporary and death is temporary. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, do not throw away your faith, which has a great reward. God is going to reward that faith that you will live in his house forever. You want, you want to know what that's like? Just look in verse 14 of this passage. This is one of the greatest verses of Habakkuk 2.14. What will it be like to live in his house forever? Well, I'll tell you this. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We will all forever just be eternally delighting in the glory of God, fully satisfied and just overwhelmed by God's majesty forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And my friends, that is a long time. It will be with him forever. And listen, if your life is a film, you're like two minutes into it. And are you really at this time going to throw your hands in the air and curse the director and walk off the set? Maybe that's a little premature. Listen, don't you know the ending? In fact, you have a guarantee, I think, that when you walk into eternity... Let me give you this guarantee as we close this morning. When you walk into eternity, no matter how hard your life has been, you will not bring your complaints with you. There is no one in heaven of the hundreds of millions of people that that will live there. There is no one in heaven. This will never be said. Yeah, heaven is nice, but I really wish my life on earth was better. Those will not be words that are uttered. Complaints will be left in death and only praise will occupy eternity. You don't know. We don't know how it all fits together. We don't understand. But because of Christ's work, we know the ending. And that's enough. For the righteous, they live by faith. Our Father, we are thankful for this great book and the encouragement that it is to me. Oh, Lord, help me not to flail around. Help us not to lean on our own understanding. Even if we must, let us stay with our brother Job. Even though you slay me, yet we will trust in you. For our faith has a great reward. Strengthen it today. That the pressure we experience today or the pressure we experience in the future not crush us, but make us into diamonds that shine forth your glory. We want to be people who live by faith. Do this for our gain and for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.